This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. And you can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, oh and he has No! Hello, and welcome back to Quickly Kevin. Will he score for Series 10? I'm Chris Gold. Joining me, as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And never mind Black Box. Here's a man who's right on time. It's Michael Marden. Hello. Was that the was that the was that the nineties? Right on time. Oh god. <laughs> oh god. It's nineteen eighty nine, Chris. Oh, you started in the Oh my oh, god. Nightmare. <laughs> An awful start to the series. So we started the tenth series and it's fell apart this quickly. There'll be a lot of people emailing in going, uh, oh, I much prefer it when you only talk about the nineties, because you not make any any references <laughs> to Ride on Time by Black Box, please. I do oh, not dear. listen to this show for references to songs from nineteen eighty nine. That is not what I'm here for. Yeah, but it's a 90s classic, isn't it? Surely people... Oh, man, have I... There's no excuses. Well, I I suppose it would have... It's not like you've chosen something from 2000, because obviously it was released in 1989. I suppose it would have gone into... See, it was released as a single in 1989. Maybe you you listened to it on their album Dreamland, which was released in Uh, 1990. That's what I would have done. Yeah, that must be what it was. Now you say it. Now it's all coming back to me now. Do you, do you remember the, the main um, the controversy surrounding Ride on Time? No. So the controversy surrounding Ride on Time was that um, the video to Ride on Time featured a, uh, a woman miming who wasn't the woman who'd sung the original vocals but was a model who uh, they deemed kind of more attractive. A slimmer girl. That was the controversy. Oh. They... they Yes, there you go. 
It's like a Millie Vanilli-esque scandal. Like before. a Millie Vanilli-esque scandal around Ride on Time. And I've just read, also, the first version used an unlicensed sample. After copyright owners took legal action, the single was reissued with re-recorded vocals by Heather Small. Oh, wow. Who later found fame in M People. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, come on, guys. This is right in the heart of the 90s, that reference. But for the TV appearances, Black Box hired model Katrin Quinol to mime the vocals. So there you go. Sorry to give you so much information about 1989. Um, well, can we stay on the subject of music, actually? And yeah. uh, I just want to play you a bit of music and just tell me if you know what this is. Is this, is this ringing any bells? No, I've never heard it before in my life. you never heard this before in your life, Michael? I don't know what it is. Here's a clue. Can you, can you no, figure out that language? This. No, I've never. Spanish or Italian? Yeah, it's a kind of romance. It's language, Italian. It? Well, you should know it. It's the official song for the Italian 90 World Cup. No. Yes. No. Yes. How have we not covered this? Wow. So Pavarotti wasn't the official song? It was... Eduardo Bernardo and Gianni Nani, and it's called Una State Italiana. Thank you to uh, James Campbell Taylor who uh, who tagged me in this. Oh, the, the wow. video itself is amazing because it kind of highlights different players playing football, but it does so in a style that is really reminiscent of the Ready Brick adverts. I'll send you a picture. There you go. It's like Rude Hullet, like lit up, like he's, he had his Ready Brick that day. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. We'll put that on our Instagram. Yeah, uh, we will. We'll put, we'll put everything on our Instagram. Okay. We are very excited to be back here uh, with the first episode of a new series, and what a series we have. Uh, would I be right in saying that you uh, you spoke to Matt Ford and gave him the lineup, and he said it was the strongest series he'd heard about? That is 100% correct. It, and when you write down these names on a piece of paper, it's an absolute dream team list we've got pulled together But here. bear in mind, Matt Ford still thinks the war in Iraq was legal. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's his opinion worth? Yeah, so so exactly. So make of that what you will. Um, we we won't tell you what we've everything we've got coming up. We want to save some exciting surprises for the series. But to say we already have in the bag Tony Adams. Uh, that's very exciting. Huge, isn't it? huge. And also one of your favourite episodes we've ever done. Joe Wilkinson on Gillingham in the nineties. Finally, Gillingham fans. There's a another. Oh, actually, we, we did Tony Pulis, didn't we? We, we did earlier. Tony Pulis. If anything, even we've more given Gillingham the club too much. <laughs> we've given them too much. We've over-indexed on Gillingham content, but this episode is fantastic. Let's be honest. It's quite it's quite Gillingham light for a Gillingham heavy episode, <laughs> if you know what I mean. It, it's quite meandering in a brilliant way, uh, and there's an incredible story about Alan Hansen that uh, I would say is one of the best ever quickly Kevin stories. Uh, we also have a bit less Peter Shilton chat than last series, hopefully. But, you know, the usual things, the mailbag, um, the end of series quiz, etc, etc. And most excitingly of all, Chris... Yes. Patreon is now a week earlier. If you want to get your episodes the Monday before, seven days before they go out to the general public, then sign up at patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. Michael is going to be editing a week ahead. Thank <laughs> God, we are not topical. The genius 
of talking about the 90s. (laughs) And not only are you going to get episodes a week ahead, we're still doing two extra episodes a month. So, which means we've been doing this for a long time, which means there's a whole catalogue of unheard, exclusive, Quickly Kevin episodes right there behind our Patreon in our Quickly Kevin fan club. And there's a whole load of specials going up this month. In fact, we've got a Saint and Greavesy special coming up this month, plus chapter two of the second Steve Bruce book. And on our Patreon as well, is the whole first book Steve Bruce's Striker it's all there plus loads of other episodes too if you want to get your episodes a week early plus hours and hours of extra Quickly Kevin content go to patreon.com forward slash Quickly Kevin now let's get on with the 90s o'clock news Headquarters of ITN News at 10 with Chris Scott. Nigel Worthington left fuming at Blackpool's 1998 team photo. Oh, that is great. What a great headline. Lovely. And Ajax reveal how they won the Champions League in 1995. Let's begin, firstly. Nigel Worthington left absolutely fuming at Blackpool's 1998 team photo. Now, I'm going to send you this team photo. You're gonna have. You're gonna need eagle eyes to spot this one. So does Nigel Worthington? Okay, there it is. He's the manager. Is he the manager? Yeah. Very early day. I think he'd retired from football. He'd stopped his playing career the the season before. Yeah. His first season as manager. I imagine this is the kind of first act as as a new manager of Blackpool. Like the first thing is the team photos. He hasn't actually managed a game. I don't think at this point. Right now, two goalkeepers there. The one on the right hand side. The guy behind him. Yeah. Uh, is Marvin Bryan. Right. Right. And I think that's Gary Brabin to the left of him. And I want to say thank you to uh, Ian Dice Clay, who on Twitter pointed this out to me. So um, Marvin Bryan, over his left shoulder, if you zoom right into that, yeah, you might spot that's a condom that someone's thrown over his shoulder for the team photo. Oh, wow. And Nigel Worthington absolutely fuming that no one has spotted this and the picture went to press and there it is, available now for all the world to see. So why has that suddenly come to light now? I don't know. This is what the 90s o'clock news is here for, to unearth stories like this. It was a kind of like getting the footballers to do that. It's a recipe for disaster because they, lo- they love banter, don't they? But something's bound to happen. All right, Paul Gascoigne would always lark around. Do you think it was a good gig or a bad gig for a photographer? I think awful. I think those team photos were probably a nightmare. I, but I'm basing that on my memory of the school version of that when you would have your school line up. And did you ever have those cameras where like the picture was so big that the camera would pan from left to right slowly? No, well we didn't have that, but that was like a kind of myth, and then one kid would run from one end to the other, right? <laughs> yeah, That's someone someone did it at our school. Myth. Yeah, you, you could do it, and it would be someone at, at both ends. What? Yeah. Is that actually, you can actually do that. I thought it was a yeah. so They do it like a pan pano that you now get on the uh, iPhone, but you'd run yeah. from one end to the other. I wonder whether there's a sort of untapped mine of Easter eggs in 90s football team photos. I think there probably that is. haven't been discovered. You know, like David Batty's keys in his socks. Oh, like yeah. if someone wants to forensically go through their team's. Uh, team photos from the 90s and see what they can unearth because why why wouldn't you do something do you know what i mean think what about when do you reckon they're doing those photos oh yeah also looking at that blackpool one it's got one of my favorite things from the 90s team photo because obviously it's exciting if the team's won a trophy that's always exciting because the trophy's brought out and put in front oh, of them it. yeah yeah but they've got three mitre deltas on the ball on the floor <laughs> in front of, on the grass in front of them which is obviously a kind of framing technique to make it more interesting. 
But it's a really 90s thing. Do they even... Oh, this is going to... Do they even still do these? I don't know. Theme photos. I, th- I think they must do. You never see them anymore, do you? I, th- I was just looking at Nigel Worthington in that because I thought he was going to be... His issue was going to be something to do with his photo. And his... I don't think he's wearing a, a top that's got his initials. It looks like it says M on it. Like, was he so fresh as a manager that they hadn't sort of emblazoned oh, yeah. his, his top with NW yet? Oh, yeah. Another thing about Nigel Worthington. How old is he here? So... It, it, yeah. Uh, like so, he's born in 1961. So what does that make him in 1998? No, no, no. 37. He's younger than us at this moment. <laughs> he looks so <laughs> old. Nigel Worthington has always been old. He has, hasn't he? He's, re- he's always been old. It's like that film Jack. 37 in that picture. Do, do you know what? As well, just to criticise this picture a little bit further, it really, it, I really struggled to figure out what the team was because they're they're wearing all three. They're wearing all three of their kits in it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like they've got the different striped layers. Obviously, yeah. uh, uh, as we've said, it'll be on, it'll be on our, our Instagram. I, I now believe that they don't do these team photos anymore because I just believe that you couldn't... There's too many clearance issues. Rights issues. Too many rights issues that you could just never Whereas do it. Gary Braben is entirely likely to have all his own image rights. Exactly, exactly. Do you know what the uh, the disappointing version of these is? is the one... I don't even know if they do these anymore. So they do the one where, like, before the semi-final of a World Cup, the team will just stand in a group on the pitch. Yeah, I think they do do that. I think they do... Yeah, I'm sure they did that at the Euros. Do they? I like yeah, those I, ones. I love that. I love that. You'll see an old one, you're trying to work out which match it's from. I do like a team photo. Mainly, mainly, my association is very difficult when they were two different stickers to get them to line up well. Oh, frustrating. Yeah. Because the, the 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 heads are so small. Yeah. Like and also there would sometimes I swear be problems that the you could line the stickers up perfectly, but it's like the sticker factory hadn't printed them right. Oh, you can you can't go with the white. You can't go you can't is <laughs> the way the to white. do it is not yeah. not to go with the stickers lining up but to go with the photo to line up because the stickers will be printed slightly differently they'll have different borders so chris tell me about ajax i'm gonna say it i couldn't really give a shit how they won the champions league in 95 <laughs> well not not in my wheelhouse yeah but how do, how do you think they were how do you think they won the the champions league in 1995 you just shared your screen with me yes i have because i want to show you something the awesome Ajax side of 95 showing off their training techniques. <laughs> now, 1995. Is this the most boring piece of 90s o'clock news that I've ever been given? <laughs> Get a load of this. This is Ajax in training. Now, you can just see a still of them. We're going to put this can on Can I just screen. say on this? Yeah. I remember at the time, the Ajax school was considered the absolute future and vanguard of um, what was happening in football. Yes. A totally. This Ajax team would see, like, you still hold them up as one of the greatest sides of the 90s. And, like, I'm sh- yeah. one of the last Dutch teams to... Is this the, one of the last the last time a Dutch team won the Champions League? I think it might. Oh, of course it is. Well, I mean... Feyenoord didn't win it in 2011, did they? Like Now, what's going on in the training ground? They got to the final the following year and lost as well, so they were pretty... You know, it wasn't a one-off. Yeah, so you would imagine on the training ground... They're working on, I don't know, set pieces, you know, high press, whatever, whatever futuristic techniques might be at their disposal. Yeah. You'd be totally wrong. Josh, I'm going to okay. play you. I'm going to play you a little clip of their training techniques, and, and just tell me what you think of this. So the, I mean, they're they're marching on the spot. They're kind of sidestepping and jumping, but you know what? They're doing a kind of, it's like dance moves, isn't it? They're doing they're doing like zumba. <laughs> that is incredible. They're zumbering. <laughs> they're zumbering. Is that what zumba is? Yeah. 
Well, it's 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 all it's kind of a slightly more up tempo version of line dancing. Yeah, it is. Now I'm gonna say in the, def- I bet you there was a lot of discussion about them being light on their feet. <laughs> Do you think that's what it is? Oh my god, look at them go! <laughs> it is, and they're, they're all in sync. It's- that's the weird thing. So they do this a lot. I'm trying to look to see whether I recognise anyone. Look at that, and they're like, so they finish the oh, routine, that, and they're like, is, yes! That is beautiful. They're, che- they're cheering. Um, can we put a little clip of that on our Instagram? Is yeah, that we'll put that in. We'll put that in our, our Instagram. Big thank you to Andy United 99 on Twitter, who sent that to me. It's sensational. Is this is this the secret to winning the Champions League? Is actually having a just fantastic dancing. Do you think, Strictly, get a few of them in the training ground? Well, I, I tell you what, I wonder if any of them have gone on to the Dutch version of Strictly. <laughs> Because notoriously, or maybe not notoriously, I'm not actually that across it, but I think I'm right in saying that sports people aren't that good on Strictly because they they turn out to be very stiff. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That They're not very kind of malleable as bodies. So you'd get a sports person who you think would be great, but they're quite upright and they're quite rigid because they're kind of muscly and not kind of limber. But maybe the Ajax team of the 90s... I wonder what it was like when they all went their separate ways. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And then so suddenly Edgar Davis is at Juventus and he's going, Shut up, where's, when are we going to hit the dance floor? <laughs> I'm just looking at the Dutch team, the Ajax team of 95, trying to see who, it's incredible. who you'd pick out as great, a great. There's a lot of contenders there for players who would be a great dancer. Edwin van der Sar in goal, too angular. He's not going to be good. Rigid, yeah, he's, he's not going to be good. Great. But you look on the back, Patrick Kluivert, you should feel he's... He's got something about him. Mark Overmars as well. Fanidi yeah. George Clarence Seydorf. Mark Overmars was quite light on his feet, wasn't he? Like had very very short steps in his very fast running style, it felt like. Yeah. Noanka Kanu on the bench, less so. Less so. Less so, yeah. I mean he could barely play football. It's incredible that Ajax team, in that almost all of them were then in the Holland team that would would have gone to Euro ninety six, failed at Euro ninety six. Yeah. But like you go through that. Van der Sar, Michael Reisiger, Danny Blind, Frank, Frank Reichard, Frank De Boer, Clarence Seedorf, Fanidi George, he's uh, Nigerian, Edgar Davids, Ronald De Boer, Mark Overmars with Yari Lippmann and Finnish. Literally all of them are in. And then on the bench, Winston Bogarda, who obviously had a great time at Chelsea, Patrick Clivert. Literally all of them ended up in the Dutch team. All of them household names, I would say, as well. Yeah. There's no one in there yeah. like, who's I that? Mean, not, I don't know about your household. How many, how many of them do you think your wife would know, Chris? Do you think Sophie's heard of any of those players? I don't think she would have heard of Fred Grimm, the, the, the Ajax no, number 13 or number 12. Well, it was a great team. It was a great team. And Managed I, by Louis van Gaal as well. Yeah, really exciting. Yeah. And you look at the Italian, the AC Milan team that played them, because they've all got their little flags next to them. Yeah. And the, the Ajax team is almost entirely Dutch. And the AC Milan team has only got two foreign players in it as well, Boban and Desai. Yeah. What a time. Yeah, Very different time, time isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 95. Like, you would say, like, Carnu, maybe even Cliver, like, Overmars, their pomp was actually the late 90s. And here they are winning the Champions yeah. League in 95. It was a very, it was a very young team, wasn't yeah. it? They all came through together because they had the... Genuinely, they had... Like a very, really good advanced training techniques, didn't they? Yeah. But um, the line dancing, as we now know. Now we know. I wonder why that's fallen out of step. Um, well, that was very interesting. If you do have any 90s o'clock news, uh, do get in touch. But now it's the big one it's the return of the electronic mailbag. 
I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Postbag. You've got mail. OK, thank you for all the correspondence. We're, get, we're getting through it. Obviously, still lots of Peter Shilton stuff, but, you know, why the hell not? So, we got this from Ian St. Ruth. Great name. Do you think that's a reference to Ian St. John? Ian St. Ruth. What, can I just have, what is the saint? What is that? Is that like... I've never yeah, heard... It's weird, yeah. isn't it? St. Yeah, is, is Ian St. John... Yeah, that's interesting. Is that his actual surname? I've never heard anyone else. Yeah, I've never heard anyone else... Is it like Sir? Is it like it's like someone was... Do you get that if someone you found who was a saint? It's not... I've never met anyone else. Yeah, like, called Ian St. John. Ian like St. John is a, is a different word. <laughs> Do you know what his full name is? You're not going to believe this. Go on. According to Wikipedia. His full name isn't Ian St. John. It's John St. John. What? <laughs> ah, whoa, 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 whoa. What? <laughs> According to Wikipedia, and there is a citation, Ian St. John's name, you can search his, his births on scottishpeople.gov.uk, there's a citation, is John St. John. It's like Stern John and John Stern. I wonder what was it? <laughs> Not John, Stern, John, John Collins, Colin John. <laughs> John Collins and Collins John. John. So his real name is John St. John. Yeah, John, Ian's a nickname. Ian's Why is nick- Ian a nickname? What a nickname to be given. Imagine how boring do you have to be that your nickname is Ian? <laughs> I'd love to hear John Gregory's uh, explanation as to why my John's and John got the nickname Ian. So what is Saint there? Is, is, is his surname John? Because they've made his nicknames trying to make your name more fun. They've made his name more boring. How much more exciting would it be if he'd been called Johnson John? Like that. That would have been such a kind of, you know, that would, I mean, it would feel normal to us now, but we'd currently be having the discussion that how mad it was that we just thought this guy was called Johnson John and we were fine with it throughout the 90s. Uh, you, know, you know, like, you, you, everyone calls him Ian St. John. Is that safe? Because it, at no point, it's only ST, it's only spelled ST throughout this. So I is think that his Saint? surname is St. John. His Saint surname John. is St. John. Yeah. And they're just abbreviated to ST. John. No, 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 no. His surname is St. John, uh, but he's called Saint. It's Saint and Greavesy because it can't be Sturt and Greavesy. <laughs> but is this so? That's his surname, St. John. St. John. <laughs> St. is not a word. It's not an. Yeah, a it's sound. an abbreviation of Saint. Like um, so like, it's a, like Mr. Meaning Mister. But at no point is that ever referenced as his, his full name. It's like Saint. It's just always abbreviated to St. It, I, I think you're missing. Also, the, I think you're missing the lead that he's called Johnson John. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's. Do you know what? I just googled Johnson John, and there's an American voiceover artist called Johnson John. So did he get the name Ian because of like those, that showbiz thing of like you can't have? <laughs> there's already like there's already, already joined Equity to do Saint and Greasy. <laughs> they were like, there's already a Johnson John. John. Like, what, what, I'll just go with Ian. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they call me anyway. <laughs> there we go. Oh, anyway. Um, Ian St. Ruth has emailed in. Or, or, or is it Ruth St. Ruth? Or is that even his name? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, lads. Long-time listener. First-time emailer in. Recently, Josh mentioned that no football chant is ever funny. Stand by it. Whilst I don't want to argue whether this is true or not, it did remind me of something from the world of 90s football, which has become a little bit of folklore in our family. Now, I should say that I read this email and I couldn't believe it had happened because... I've always had this vague memory. You know, when you hear something, you're like, I remember that. 
I listened to that and it's such a minor thing. But as soon as he said it, I was like, fuck me, I remember that. So I'd love to know if anyone else remembers it. But in the late 90s, former games master Dominic Diamond was hosting a Sunday evening football show on Five Live. My brothers were back from university and were playing sensible soccer for old time's sake with the radio on in the background. The programme featured a quiz where a fan from each of that evening's games competed against each other. Now I remember this, the show was called Sports Call, it was quite good, it was like a kind of um, lots of different football quizzes and sports quizzes. The first contestant was an Arsenal fan who was asked for a song to use as a buzz-in. He chose 1-0 to the Arsenal, which he sang, of course, to the tune of Go West. Do you want to just sing that for us, Chris? 1-0 to the Arsenal. 1-0. Yeah. Yeah. Now I remember this happening. Because the reason I remember it happening is it was quite mortifying, Okay. The next contestant was an Everton fan who clearly wasn't as into football as the first player. But after some prompting for a song by Dominic Diamond and coming up with nothing, the host got frustrated and said, well, just give us a burst of the theme from Zed Cars, which obviously, you know, is what Everton run on to. This guy obviously had no idea what the theme to Zed Cars was. Had never been to an Everton game. So he started singing to go west the words the theme from Zed Cars. Could you give us a burst of that, Chris? <laughs> the theme to the Z cars. The theme to the Z cars. <laughs> to this day, me and my brother, if we ever hear Everton or Watford run out to that tune, start singing the theme to Z cars to go west. <laughs> and you remember this? I I remember it because it was mortifying. I don't know why. You know how, like, shame sticks with you? Yeah. You know how, like, shame, <laughs> shame. Is, the, is the thing that yeah. sticks most to you? And it was a shameful moment. You could hear it was embarrassing for all concerned. They'd obviously booked this wrong caller that didn't know anything about football. Like, they'd, <laughs> he embarrassed himself, and then they had to kind of make good of it. And I was, what, ever 14 or whatever, and... Not in the sense that I've thought about this much since, but in the sense that as soon as I was reading this, I was like, yes, that thing that happened, yeah. If anyone's got a recording of it, I'd love to hear it. Why is that the better option? Because it's obviously not that. Why is that the better option than, <laughs> than going, I don't know the tune? <laughs> Why would he think that was the song? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, also, any other callers you remember from 90s phone-ins will happily have. It was a glorious time for the phone-in, I think. Because it was a much more innocent time. It wasn't get through to Alan Brazil, who'll take you down a peg or two because you think that Paul Pogba's actually good. Do you know what I mean? There's, <laughs> there was none of that going around. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Right, what a person to start with, eh? Excited, Chris? Oh, man, it doesn't get better than it. I mean, Captain Marvel. Sitting down to write this interview was hard, because you're like, what do you cover? I could write six of these. What do you cover? You could do a whole series on this man. An absolute legend of 90s football as a player and a manager. And yes, we do ask him about the photo shoot. This is <laughs> Brian Robson. He was one of the players that I really looked up to. Was never selfish, and that was something that epitomised him. You know, it's not even a gamble, you know, buying a player like him. 
because he's, he's pure gold. Signing him for me was the best businessman United had ever done. Did I ever have a tougher opponent? No. It was the first major trophy that I won, and it's exactly why I moved to Manchester United, because I wanted to win things in my career. He was the outstanding player in the league. Floating it, McQueen looking to get the header in, and Robson! Once you saw the real Brian Robson in midfield, there's nothing better. That if Brian had stayed fit in 86 and 90, we'd have won one of them. He was my hero, and I'd be in awe of him. I didn't realise just how good he was. Going to every challenge like it was the last challenge he was ever going to go into in his life. He couldn't spot danger. He didn't see danger. Can he find the shot? Brilliant goal! There's certain clubs that have certain numbers, and obviously with United, the number seven shirt has always been special. Number seven is, is like the leader and the one who organised everything. He is not just a leader, he was a Panthers leader as well. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> Our guest this week is an absolute titan of the English game. Starting out at West Brom in 1972, he went on to become Manchester United's longest-serving captain, winning two Premier Leagues, a League Cup, three FA Cups and the European Cup Winners' Cup. Capped 90 times for his country, he closed out his playing career at Middlesbrough as player-manager, going on to create one of the most exciting Middlesbrough teams in modern memory. It's our pleasure to welcome to Quitly Kevin, Captain Marvel, Brian Robson. Welcome, Brian. Afternoon. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. We're so excited. Um, I'm going to correct... Chris and say the most exciting Middlesbrough team in modern memory. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. <laughs> um, let's start. As you started out at West Brom, obviously you made your debut in '75. In '78, Big Ron became the uh, West Brom manager. What was life like at West Brom in the '70s? Yeah, I had some good managers. I, I mean, for me, one of the best coaches ever who learned me a lot about the game was Don Howe, um, and I worked with Don for eight years with England. Uh, so he was my first manager at West Brom. Then uh, they moved on to Johnny Giles, who was a very good manager, um, but he only stayed for a couple of years. Then la- larger than life, uh, Ron came along um, and things went even better for me, you know, when Ron came into the club. What was he like as a manager? He's very different from Alex Ferguson, who you went to then play under for so many years. Yeah, he. I, I mean, Ron, he, he loved you to enjoy training, and he loved football and he wanted you to play with a smile on your face. Yeah. Um, so he wasn't somewhat, even though he was tactically minded, he, he wouldn't give that the priority. He just want us to go out as his team and express yourself where, you know, you move on to Alex and Alex wanted you to know every little detail about the opposition strengths, the weaknesses, and what we could do to exploit that, where Ron would just go out, go on, express yourself and enjoy the game. Big Ron goes to so Big Ron went to Manchester United and then in October 81, you followed him. Was that always on the cup? When Big Ron left, were you always like, I'd love to follow him to United? Uh, I, I mean, what uh, sort of unsettled me at West Brom is we, we had a really good team. It's 78, 79, and I thought we we're really going to go places. But then all of a sudden, West Brom sold Laurie Cunningham to Real Madrid. 
uh, Len Cantelo at Bolton, who I thought were two of our best players. Uh, and so that unsettled me because I thought I want to win things in the game. Uh, you know, so when Ron moved to Manchester United uh, in the England camp, uh, the Man United lads were saying, you know, United would uh, like to sign you, Brian. And is that how it happens in those? Days? Is that how it happens? Then they're like they're coming up to you in England, going, "You fancy joining us?" Yeah, the the, <laughs> the lads would definitely see if there was any interest there from yourself. And I mean, I didn't just have the United lads. I mean, at that time, most of the uh, England squad was built around the Liverpool boys yeah. at that time. So I got very friendly with Terry McDermott and so Terry Mark and Phil Neal, Phil Thompson, Kevin Keegan, all them lot would be saying, you know, Liverpool are after you, you know, they would love you to sign. Uh, so you get that sort of conversation. But, um, you know, I was contracted to West Brom and really at the end of the day, it was who was going to pay the most for me and that would be the club that I'd go to. So it wasn't your decision then? It was like, they just said, we've accepted a bit from Man U, you're off kind of situation. Yeah, I, I mean, from what I heard, Liverpool wouldn't go above 1.2 million, where Man United went to one and a half million, you know, and then they accepted that. And that was when they allowed myself and Remy Moses to go and talk to Manchester United. At last, the golden boy arrived, his limousine swishing through the Manchester puddles. With him, his wife, his solicitor, his personal manager and his accountant. Once you could have bought United, ground and all, for less than two million. This is the happy face today of the one player now said to be worth that astonishing sum. He'll sign tomorrow. Mr Atkinson reckons he's got a bargain. Hey, you pay for quality. He's goldust. But even at a time when clubs are struggling, you think it, it's, it's worth paying that sort of money, do you think? Hey, listen, I've just said to you earlier, we've signed, we will, if we get the lad, we get the best. And you know, you have to pay for the best, you know. Are you a happy man tonight? Be a lot happier when I see him put a red shirt on and play for us. That fee, so it goes up to 1.5 million, that's what Man United played, that was a British transfer record. Do you feel the pressure? Yeah, you do, because it's, it's far different from when you come through the ranks at a football club, the local fans, the love you because you've come through the ranks, you're their baby. And so when you make it into the first team, uh, the fans tend to love that. When you're actually bought for a, a large fee, all of a sudden expectations are there, um, you know, and if you're bought for that type of money, you've got to be something sort of like special or you've got to be able to do something which young lads coming through the ranks wouldn't be able to do. And that, that's the philosophy of the fans, you know, no matter which club, not just Man United or West Brom, you know, it's any club, uh, the fans are like that. They expect if you're bought for a lot of money. Um, when you joined Man U, because obviously now we see Man U as this kind of, it's this huge mega club, it's the biggest club in the world. But in 1981, they haven't won the league in 13 years. You know, what, what's the club like at that point when you joined them? Well, we had uh, a fairly decent side because... Uh, Dave Sexton, I'm, I'm sure United the year before had finished either second or third in the league. And they had players like Ray Wilkins, Stevie Copper, people like this who were top players. Then they had some Scottish lads, Gordon McQueen, Lou McCary and that, who were, you know, great pros. Um, so they were fairly well established when I joined. You know, but the expectations you could you could sense as soon as you go through the doors at Old Trafford, 
you have to win things. And the main one is the league title. You know, that's the one that everybody was after yeah. at that time. You know, unfortunately, it took us quite a long time, but at least we won a few cups. Uh, but that's not good enough when you're at Man United. It's got to be the league title. Was there a point in the late 80s where you were thinking, oh, I wish Liverpool had bid 1.6 million because I'd have won the league by six times? <laughs> are you are you trying to get me strung up in the Stratford end? <laughs> you can tell me, Brian. No one's going to hear. <laughs> no, um, you know, when you go through your career and, you know, it's, it's because you want to win things. Uh, I mean, I'm looking at the Liverpool team and they keep winning the title and making it really difficult for us at the time. And and sometimes you, you do, you go, you know, if I'd signed for them, I, I might have won five or six titles now. Yeah. But look, I, I've had a fantastic time at Manchester United. I'm, I'm really pleased that I signed for them. But... I do look back and I go, yeah, like, you know, I won the two titles right at the end of my career, but at least I achieved that. I mean, I, you, you know, sometimes you look back and you go, well, what would it have been like if I hadn't have won the title? Fortunately, that did happen and I had 13 great years at United. Yeah, I think you dodged that question really well, yeah, Brian. That's really well, great. It's <laughs> a politician's answer. <laughs> but did you ever have a wobble, Brian? Like there was rumours it was in the mid '80s that you nearly went to Juventus. Were you ever close? Yeah, it was when I came back from the World Cup in '82. I had uh, a, a decent World Cup, and then because I scored a couple of goals against France, I think people were taking a bit more notice of me. So when we had the good run in Europe and we beat Barcelona. Um, and I had a couple of good games against them. All of a sudden, uh, Italian teams who were the teams to be playing for at that time in Europe. Yeah, there was an interest from Inter Milan, Juventus and Sampdoria. And for the first time since the 60s, United reached the last eight of a European competition, but were beaten 2-0 by Maradona's Barcelona in the Nou Camp. I remember Martin Edwards saying to me, I'll tell you what, man, you'll hear a noise tonight like you've never heard before. And I, I, I don't know whether it's ever been repeated at United, but there was, it was like a shrill from the moment we came out. It was, and, and it was kept up for 90 minutes. It was the best atmosphere I'd been involved with it to Old Trafford. Because of the way the game went, the goals were scored at perfect times. And so it kept the crowd with us all the time. United muster the forces on the near post. Whiteside is there, so too is Stapleton. A goal! Robson right on the line. Natalia pressed by Robson. Schuster finding the back pass cut off by Whiteside. And Whiteside almost in, Orotti as Vitor played it back carelessly. Orotti cleared with the foot. Wilkins and Orotti in trouble, Robson! And the goalkeeper. A chapter of disasters that Robson in the end profited it from. Robson, who suddenly finds himself on a European hat-trick. And Orbiston is onside. Whiteside, Stapleton! Two goals in two minutes! It's a glorious night for Manchester United! And 
Barcelona stand and look in stunned amazement. But that that again was took out of my hands because I was I was signed up for United for another three years and when they started bidding, uh, United turned around and said, "Well, if they were going to let me go, they wanted three million, which was uh, world record at that time, which uh, Barcelona paid for Maradona. So it it helped me in a way because I knew none of the Italian clubs were going to pay that, but." I then went into Martin Edwards and said, look, you know, if you rate me that much, I, I says, I'd like a new seven-year contract, <laughs> which I got. Uh, you know, so I was quite happy to stay at Manchester. When you say you went in, have you got an agent in those days? Are you literally having to negotiate these things yourself? No, I had an agent, Harry Swills, but uh, Harry really he just wanted to do the commercial side. He didn't really want to do the football side unless I went abroad. But I, I was quite determined in my own mind of what I wanted as a footballer. You know, so when I had already been to United for a couple of years, three years, I then said, well, right, I don't mind playing more or less the rest of my career for United. Yeah. That's why I asked for a seven-year contract. Bloody hell, seven-year contract when you haven't won the league yet. That's a hell of a commitment. That is a real loyalty to a club. Yeah, but the thing was, though, Josh, is that uh, around the area of Manchester, people had always been really good with me. My family were settled into this area and they were loving it. Yeah. Um, and the area that I live in, it's a really nice area and... You know, we've always enjoyed it here, and that's why I've still got the same house now. Have you? Wow. You still live in the same house as when you did in the 80s? Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Going back to the mid-80s, so 86, big Ron, Man United start, start a season badly, big Ron goes, and in comes Sir Alex Ferguson. Obviously now a titan of football, but at the time, what were your initial impressions? Was he immediately scary? Not immediately, because Gordon Strachan had been... Uh, from Aberdeen uh, by Big Ron. Strack was telling us all the stories about Salix and what he was like, especially with the young lads up at Aberdeen. Uh, so you think, nah, it can't be that bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when, when he came into the club, you could see he was adamant about certain discipline sides and the way you had to train. But uh, it was quite funny where the first time I saw the boss have the hairdryer treatment uh, to Big Paul McGrath. And he was a gentle giant, Big Paul, and Big Paul just didn't know how to take it while, when the gaffer was like raging into it, right in front of his face. In a way, it was funny, but you're thinking, don't smile or anything, and that, because if he catches you. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I mean, that was Alexi. The discipline, especially with the young boys, the young boys had to be, you know, spot on with everything they did because he'd jump on top of young players uh, because he wanted them to grow up in the right way, have the right attitude, dedicate themselves to the game. And that's why he had so much success because, you know, of that dedication and discipline that he instilled in the players. Do you remember your first day with Alex Ferguson? Like you say that you saw him the first time you saw the hairdryer treatment on Paul McGrath. Was there like a honeymoon period where he was quite a nice guy for a few days, or did he come in and it was like bang? 
I can always remember the boss and Archie Knox, uh, their first year. Uh, he got all the first-team squad, the reserves and the YTS boys. We all went in the gym at uh, the Cliff Training Ground. Uh, we were all sitting down there. He came to the stairs uh, and he went, um, Look, no expectations from me or I don't expect any expectations from yourselves. All I want you to do, enjoy your training, impress me and Archie. And if you do that, you can have a career at this football club. So let's go out and train. And that's as simple as it was. There wasn't any other details in that. And, you know, yeah. you just proved to me that you're a Manchester United player. What was it like when, because it, obviously it started and it wasn't a success from the off. Did it feel like the pressure was growing on him? No, he, what you could tell was that he was doing a lot of work in the background. And when he brought... Uh, Brian Kidd, Nobby Styles in to sort of do the youth development and scout boys from all around the Northwest region, which the boss had said he wanted to do because he wanted to implement what had made Smart Busby really successful with the Busby Babes. So he wanted that to be going on in the background as well as him then starting to improve the first team squad where he went and he bought Brian McClare was probably one of the first then he went down uh, and bought Steve Bruce from Norwich, Paulins from West Ham. And you could see the quality of those players was just making us better as the boss was adding those sort of players to the squad. Um, so you could see what he was building, even though the results still weren't great at that time. And that's why when people say if he hadn't have won the FA Cup in 90, he probably could have got the sack. Um, I, I don't think that was ever the case. Do the players talk about stuff like that in the dressing room or is it media narrative outside of the club? Yeah, no, as players, you never really talk about the manager, whether he, he could be sacked or whether he's under pressure. I mean, you, you know yourself as a player that if you're sort of mid-table or below that, you know you're not doing your job as well as what you want because when you're at a top club like Manchester United, you know that you've got to be challenging for Europe, challenging for cup competitions. And that's where, if we go back to sort of Ron Atkinson, I mean, when Ron got the sack, as a player, he paid a transfer record for me. You feel guilty because you think, yeah, you know, he's been sacked and you're one of the players who's who's let him down. So you say you feel guilty. Did you, did you speak to Ron after he'd been sacked? How does it work? Do you just come in one day and he's gone? Yeah, it was a little bit like that. But with Ron, it was different to any other manager uh, that I had because what Ron did, he he lived just north of Manchester and um, he had a house party on the night and invited people, certain people from the club. And myself and Gordon Stratton, uh, he invited us to, to go across and, and have a drink and just say, so I like farewell to him. Oh, wow. That feels so big, Ron, to get sacked and then have a party. <laughs> so like... Yeah, you, you're probably right there. Um, you know, there's only Ron could do that. <laughs> what was the mood like at the party? Everybody was chatting, having a few drinks and that. He's cracking jokes and everything. <laughs> and that typical of big Ron. <laughs> and then for, Sir Alex comes in and you're never allowed to have a drink again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I just want to read a line from Sir Alex's book. He's talking about you and he says, you were a man for whom winning was as important as breathing. You're a miracle of commitment, a human marvel who could push himself beyond every imaginable limit on the field. He says, of all the players I've worked with in the 40 years in the game, you rank among the three or four who have impressed him the most. I read that and I thought, does that mean he's cutting you a lot of slack? Did you have a different relationship to everyone else? Was there an extra bit of respect he was giving you that maybe others weren't? No, I, I think where myself and the boss got on really well and, you know, he sort of like said the type of discipline he wanted from me and everything, he knew that I took that on board uh, because I wanted to play a, a long time in my career. But it was because I was probably the oldest in the squad at that time as well. And so the gaffer knew that, you know, that I had a good rapport with all the players and we had a good camaraderie in the camp at that time. So he knew I was quite an important part of that. Um, and, and I think that's why, you, you know, me and him gone really well. I, I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I got a few bollockings off him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, we got on well. And, and that's because, like, I always wanted to win, even if it was in a five-a-side, an eight-a-side in training, whether it was like, playing head tennis or whatever in the gym, you, you just want to win all the time. Um, and that's the way I was. And I think he, he liked that in me. Yeah. It gets to the 1990 FA Cup final. The first final before the replay was 3 all, And then it goes to a replay. Jim Layton gets dropped for the replay, which is one of Alex Ferguson's kind of biggest decisions. How was that experience to be in the dressing room when that happened? Well, we, we were all gobsmacked. All, all the players uh, like were really shocked at the decision. But that is typical Salix Ferguson and why he was so successful as a manager. He saw that little bit of weakness in Jim in the first game. And I think he sort of like criticised him for at least two of the goals. But he never mentioned it. We didn't work on it in training or anything like that. Um, we turned up at Wembley, he named the side. It, Jim was there at Wembley and he named the side and Jim Layton just wasn't in the side. Yeah. Blimey. Yeah, but you know, there's two sides to that, Josh, because you, you've got somewhere like Jim who was obviously so upset yeah. um, and you're trying to console him. But then you've got Les Seeley who's leaping about. <laughs> he, he wasn't a shy lad, uh, Les, anyway. So, yeah, I haven't to try and calm him down. He was so excited. But when you look at the replay, I, I mean, Les made two fantastic saves, you know, in that game when it was nil-nil. Jeff Thomas and Alan Pardew and Andy Gray gathered round the ball. This is all part of the ploy by Crystal Palace to delay the free kick being taken. And it's Gray! Oh, saved by Seeley's legs! That's a good stop. It may even be a brilliant stop. Manchester United have won the FA Cup and equaled the record of seven outright wins. Palace slumped to the ground. Manchester United celebrate Alex Ferguson's first major trophy at Old Trafford. It's a replays on like the Tuesday or whatever. How does that work? Like, obviously there's no cup final replays now. How does that work? Getting yourself up for that again? Like, do you go back to Manchester? Are you staying down in London? What's like, what's that experience like between the two games? 
No, well, we went back to Manchester and then you just go back into training as normal and prepare yourself for another battle because, you know, Palace were a decent side at that time and they proved that even though they were in a lower division, Mm. they had some excellent players in that team who went on to have great careers in the Premiership, you know, like Ian Wright, Mark Bright and, and that they were really good top professional players. Uh, so it was a tough game, but I, I mean that that second game I can always remember. It's probably one of the toughest games I've ever played in, as far as both teams being so physical. But we we knew that with people like Alan Pardew and that uh, in midfield and everything and that. I turned round to NC only after 15 minutes and you knew what the game was going like. And like I said to him, hey, this is a cup final like and we're in a war, so let's get to it. (laughs) That's such a tough midfield as well. You and Paul Ince and then obviously Roy Keane comes along. Did you enjoy that side of the game, like the battling? Yeah, look, I'd much prefer to play against oppositions who are just going to let you play and it's a free-flowing football match. Uh, I'd much sooner play in that type of game. But when you come up against the the best and people who are as determined as you to try and win competitions, then you know you're going to get into real battles with with people and that. And so that's why... I was delighted, sort of in my last few years at United, uh, the gaffer had already signed Paul Ince and Roy Keane. And to tell the truth, you wouldn't want to go and battle with anybody else other than them yeah. two on your side. And that they were both absolute top players, as well as being tough lads. Another player that Sir Alex signed that, again, got you on that trajectory to your first uh, league title, Eric Cantona. What were your first impressions of Eric Cantona when he walked into the dressing room? Yeah, Eric was a great lad. Um, and he said what he loved about English football rather than French football is the camaraderie that the British players have. Uh, and Eric loved that side of it. Um, so now and again, when we had team bonding sessions, maybe three, four times in a season, where yeah, I'd go to a restaurant, have a few drinks, a meal, or go golf and or horse racing, something like that, as a whole group, Eric would be the first to them. He, he just loved those sort of days. Wow. But, but yeah, but Eric was, um, he was the last piece in the jigsaw as far as Alex's team uh, in 92-93 because we really believed we could win the title that year, you know, especially after winning the European Cup Winners' Cup uh, against Barcelona in Rotterdam. Uh, I mean, that was a great achievement by the boys who were in the club. But the boss had just moved us on that little bit further from 91. And, yeah, the signing of Eric was perfect for all the players who went round them. Uh, and it, it proved that way, you know, when we went on to win the, the title that year. Lee Sharp. Got away from Sinclair. It's a great cross. Feeling arriving. Cantona, maybe. Yes! Chelsea are in front for just four minutes. Eric Cantona's first goal for Manchester United has seen to that. When you signed him, was there like this... Because he's got this reputation as he's, you know, basically got thrown out of the French team. He's called his manager a bag of shit. And then he's moved from Leeds and, like, you know, all this baggage. What were you expecting? Was he completely different to how you expected? 
Yeah, well, he was a great professional, you know, so he walked into the camp. He would go out 10, 15 minutes before all the rest of the boys onto the train pitch and he'd do his own little warm-up. Then the coach would take all the lads as a group and we'd all do our warm-up. But then Eric, after training, he would stay out and do a warm-down, which all of us sort of took on board after a month or so we all started taking that on board ourselves and saying, yeah, we should do a warm down and all that, which yeah. wasn't in the club at that time. So it was little things like that. But then Eric had this presence, um, you know, where some people would look at him and think he's aloof, you know, especially if you're in a public place and people are trying to talk to him or anything. And that Eric could just sort of keep himself to himself. But with the lads, he mixed in great. And, uh, you know, from about 91 to 95, that's the best group of players uh, I've ever sort of played with. And that we had uh, such great fun and great characters. And the camaraderie between the the, the team was uh, brilliant at that time. Was there like a personal sadness to kind of like, you knew you were coming towards the end of your career, getting a bit older and you got this class of 92 coming in. Was there a tinge of sadness that this team was just getting better and better and you, you were coming to the end of it? Uh, yes, there is that, you know, but in fairness, uh, you know, we won the double that year. I thought because of being part of that and I didn't realise, but I think I played 38 games with cup competitions and all, all the other games in that. Uh, I thought the boss might offer me just one more year, but that's what that's what you like when you get to 37. <laughs> I think just one more year. I mean, the boss had me in his office and he said, you know, because of the class of 92, he, he had to make way for them. And so he let quite a few of the older lads go at that time to bring the young lads through. But his judgment was right because nobody could have believed that the class of 92 were all going to be as good as what they were. It'd be difficult to dispute it now that he shouldn't have done that, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think you made a real error there. Well, Josh, the only thing I've got to tell you, because I've told the boss about 500 times since I've left the club, I went to Borough and we won the championship title. The gaffer, uh, unfortunately, didn't win anything that season. <laughs> Um, how did it feel to finally win the title, to finally get your hands on a Premier League title with, with Manchester United? Oh, no, I, it, it was great because, you know, from when I joined United, people would be saying, oh, it's 23 years, it's 24 years, it's 25 years since, you know, United have won the title. And you just felt, oh, how long is this going to go on? Uh, and, uh, and everybody around the club, that was the one that they wanted. So... When we actually achieved that in 92, 93, it was like a ball and chain being cut from around your neck. And then Samad Busby was alive as well. And, yeah, you know, he witnessed it. So it was just a great feeling. But then also it just gave all those players the confidence to go on. And then when the class of 92 came in to join some of the boys who made that happen in 92, 93, they didn't have the pressure of people just keep saying, you've never won the title for this many years. Uh, so they could just get on with enjoying the football and try and achieve that. Side by side. 
captain and the club captain. Steve Bruce has become a leader in his own right in Brian Robson's absence. Their combined efforts on and off the pitch have contributed so much to the strength and the step along this very long road. The long, long wait is over. Manchester United are the champions of England for the eighth time and the very first under the auspices of the FA Premier League. Do you remember what you did the night that you won the league? Um, yes, we went to a local hotel and uh, just had a couple of drinks because the couple would only let us have a couple of drinks. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's, um, I think I saw footage on that um, Premier League documentary of the game after you've um, won the league for the first time. And like the whole team's like really hung over and they have to go through the match or something. <laughs> Was that... Right? I, I think we were a little bit hungover. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some some lads, uh, they can take it. Some lads get a little bit ill. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must have played on a few hangovers in your time. What's it like? No, you, you know what, Josh? I always had a rule to myself, uh, never drink two nights before a game. Oh, really? So if you've got like a weekend game, a Wednesday game, a weekend game, so really, you're only drinking maybe one, maybe twice a week. That that's mm. all you ever have a drink. Let's move on to Middlesbrough. So I mean, I mean, this Middlesbrough team you created, I still think is one most exciting team of the '90s. One of the most exciting teams. So, but how? But Middlesbrough were unfashionable at the time. I wondered how that first meeting with Steve Gibson went. How did they sell you, Middlesbrough? So, well, Steve had a vision of a new stadium, uh, which is the Riverside now. He said that you would give me a couple of million to spend on players um, to try and improve the, the squad of players that were had. And so that was the initial talk. But then he showed me the plans for the new training ground that, that he wanted. But he said it was really important about getting promoted to the Premiership. Unfortunately, with the money that he gave me and then some of the free transfers, I got mainly myself as a free going in going into the team. Clayton Blackmore was a free transfer from United. And then I got Viv, who was manager at Barnsley at the time, but could still play. And so with us three as free transfers, I still had the two million pounds and I'd brought a lot of experience into the borough squad. We got off to a great start. Um, we went the first seven games, we won six and drew one. So that gave everybody confidence and the lads had confidence in me as player manager. Um, and then we, we just kept it going throughout the season. Fortunately, won the, the championship and got into the premiership, which fitted in brilliant with Steve's plans for the Riverside Stadium. Um, you know, because going into the premiership, we moved straight into the Riverside. Borough fans loved it. And we sold out all the season tickets uh, you know, so we had a 30,000 full house uh, every week. One of the most iconic pictures of the 90s, I'm sure you're aware of it. Do you remember your photo shoot when you signed as player manager of uh, Middlesbrough? I've got it here, just to remind you, just in case you've forgotten. It's but amazing how, could you how everybody remembers me curly perm on Old Trafford pitch. 
uh, and the blazer and shorts. It's amazing what commercial people can talk you into, is it? Did you have any worries about it when you were putting on the shorts and the socks and the uh, tie? No, I, I was going, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, and in the end, a guy called Grim Ford, he was their commercial manager at the time. He's gone, Brian, it's brilliant. He says, there's hardly been any, you know, player managers. He says, this is going to be a great shoot. <laughs> and so I went along with it. 25 years later, you can't escape it. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's still going. <laughs> What's it like being a player manager? Like, this is, it must be quite a weird experience because you're, on the pitch and you're trying to analyse what's going on and also the last thing you need to do is let the team down obviously because you're the manager who's going to have to give them the half-time team like how does it work i mean what you've got to try and do is well what i did at first i spoke to the the group of players and i said uh, you know my first time in, in training i just said look out when i'm on the pitch i'm one of you I says, like, if you want to have a go at me, you can have a go at me as long as it's controlled and it's in favour of the team. I have no problems with that. If I have a go at you it's as a player, not as a manager, I'm not going to hold it against you uh, after the match. Uh, but then I said to John Pickering and Viv Anderson, my two coaches at the time, you take half-time, and if I really feel something which I'm feeling on the pitch then I'll come in if I want to come in. But I said, and then I can't see everything that goes on on the pitch. I said, so substitutions towards the end of games, uh, you know, I'll leave that to you too. Uh, and so it worked quite well. Did they ever substitute you? No. They wouldn't <laughs> <really do> that. <laughs> that, that is a sack, sackable offence. <laughs> Did you ever substitute yourself? Did you ever say, take me off here? No, I didn't. Uh, the only thing was uh, every time I dropped myself because I'd say, right, I'm going to have a bit of a rest. And I had two really good, energetic, young central midfield players called Jamie Pollock and Robbie Musto. Uh, and so I, I wanted to give them a little bit of a chance in, in certain games. Um, and every time I went to drop myself, like all my staff would go, no, you can't. You can't drop yourself. You, you just can't do that. <laughs> Like, adjust the team and let's play another formation so then we can get the three-year in if you really want Jamie and Robbie to be in. But I did drop myself a few times. <laughs> and then that's when you start making some incredible signings. So the first one was Janinho, who'd scored an amazing goal for Brazil against England at Wembley prior to that. How did this come about? It's It, it felt, at the time, so out of this world that Middlesbrough had signed Janinho. Well, I don't know if you know this, but up at Middlesbrough, there's quite a, a Brazilian sort of section around Middlesbrough. I, uh, I didn't know that until uh, I actually started to sign Juninho. But where it came from is when Terry Venables asked me to become uh, a coach with him, we were in the com competition before the European Championships the year before. We were in the uh, Umbro Cup competition, yeah. which yeah. was Sweden-Brazil. Uh, Japan and ourselves and um, I was going about as a coach and I was scouting all, all the games I just saw Brazil playing a couple of the games and there was Roberto Carlos and Juninho who were both the same age and I just thought well they're two really good young players 
Um, so when I came away from that, I inquired about Juninho and Roberto Carlos, and they were both down in uh, Sao Paulo. And I spoke to Steve about Juninho, but I hadn't mentioned Roberto Carlos. And what happened is that we persuaded uh, Sao Paulo to sell him to us for five million US dollars. I said, what about the left back Roberto Carlos? <laughs> and uh, I said, what about him for five million US dollars? And he went, Mr. Robson, he says, yeah, you're too late. He says, we've just sold them to Inter Milan last week. Oh. So oh. I, I could have ended up with the two. Mind, I still had to clear another five million US dollars <laughs> from Steve. <laughs> oh, wow, that would have been incredible. Yeah, but that's how Juninho came about. Zinho is there. Roberto Carlos has marked out a run. Brazil put their trademark on this match. Juninho, they have done. It's 1-1. Juninho scores for Brazil at Wembley. With a typical free kick, South American style, and England have lost the lead. And how easy was it to convince him to sign for Middlesbrough? Yeah, well, a lot of Brazilian players, they do not believe that they have made it in football unless they play in a European country and do really well yeah and so Juninho uh, was right up for you know coming to England and, and playing uh, I, I think at that time when I was talking to his dad they they were feeling that Spain Germany countries like that thought he was a bit too small right you, you also signed Ravinelli from Juventus Emerson was a hell of a character to deal with, right? What was he like to manage? Uh, he was a great lad. Um, loved his football. Always had a smile on his face uh, coming in training. Um, so he was good. I, I mean, uh, Emerson let himself down a couple of occasions where I allowed him to go back to Brazil uh, and then he was a couple of days late coming back, which which is always a bit of a problem, but it's manageable. You find them if the if the indisciplined like that but in the main uh, Emerson was a really good player great trainer and he was tough uh, you know so if he got a knock or all that he'd always want to play uh, not one of these who you know you have a bit of an injury and you don't want to play uh, he wasn't like that at all so he was uh, a hard lad Ravinelli Juninho was a big influence on me being able to sign Ravinelli <laughs> Yeah, Ravinelli loved Juninho's style and he just thought he, he would fit in with, with him. Uh, so even I was surprised uh, at getting Ravinelli because <laughs> Juventus had won the Champions League the year, the year before. So I was gobsmacked that he said yes to come in. <laughs> How did you even know to approach him? Like, it, it feels like Janino was playing in Brazil, but he was playing for the best team in the world, basically, Juventus. Well, honestly, uh, I'm, I'm sure I, I, I must have had a magician in my bag or something <laughs> who talked him into uh, coming to us. Um, I mean, to be fair, I wasn't after him. I was after Viali. And I went to watch them in a Champions League game uh, with my chief exec. And when we were talking to uh, the owners and everybody afterwards, 
they, they'd said that they'd more or less earmarked Viali for Chelsea. Chelsea had already been in there. And Ravinelli, he came on a sub that night. And like I really like Ravinelli. And being a sub, I, I just said, well, what about uh, Ravinelli? And they said, well, we'll consider an offer. Uh, which I was really surprised at. Was was Ravinelli's quite a difficult character, isn't he? I know he could, he could be quite selfish on the field, uh, maybe a little bit difficult off it. But then you're also signing Gaza and Merson. These are all mercurial talents who must have been a nightmare to manage. Was it tough? Yeah, but to get top players to to go to Middlesbrough and play at Borough, you know, when you don't have the charisma of the big clubs, mm. then there's got to be something about the player of, yeah, you know, there's something about them where there's a little bit of what you've got to work on. Say like Christian Zager, when I got him from AC Milan, I mean, he's a fantastic player, but he got into Milan's reserves. Um, I'd seen him in the European Championships where Germany had won it and he was just brilliant as a left back. So it's a matter, you get him because he's in their reserves. Players that are slightly damaged goods in some way, slightly. Exactly right. So you've got to deal with that and you've got to try. I mean, like Paul Merson, when I got Merson to come to Borough, it was one of them. He was in, he was on the bench all the time at Arsenal. And I lost his place in England and I got in touch with Merson. And I just said, Merson, if you come to us, you know, you'll be playing every week and I think I'll get you back into the England team. But Merce had, had a fantastic season for us. I mean, we won promotion. He won Player of the Year. We got to a cup final uh, and he got himself back into the England team. Keeping it on, just Emerson nodding it into the path of Beck. Beck hooking it over his shoulder. Merson's on the charge, a real chance. And he's finished it. Well, that's why they invested so heavily in Paul Merson. And the partnership with Mikel Beck was so prevalent there. Beck with a flick, Merson with a pace, out sprinting the unfamiliar Stockport lineup with a debutante at the heart of it. And Merson's finish was superb. There's a rumour, is it true, that uh, Middlesbrough would sometimes show players around London and not let on how far away it was? <laughs> Have you heard this rumour? Have you heard that rumour? I haven't heard that rumour because oh, right. I know exactly where London is. <laughs> <laughs> And Paul Merson used to commute, didn't he? He used to, like, go up and down every day on a train because we interviewed him and he said that. No, he, he didn't every day. Uh, a couple of nights a week he'd stay. But, but then he had um, he had a rental property for six months uh, as well. But how, how often he stayed in that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he used to tell me he stayed in it. <laughs> Um, a quick word on the 96-97 season. It's one of the most peculiar seasons of any team in Premier League history. You end up relegated, but you score 111 goals, which is the fourth highest in the league that year. You reach two uh, uh, cup finals, but you end up getting relegated because of the points deduction because you asked for a game to be postponed. I wondered, like, did that postponement, did that keep you up for years afterwards? That, that one decision, did it eat at you? Yeah, because I thought it was unjust because yeah. the doctor, he did a medical report to the Premier League on 24 players who had virus and injuries uh, who were unavailable for that game. So we thought, 
oh, Keith Lamb, my uh, chief exec, he thought that we would get a fine. You know, so it was really disappointing when you lose three points that you'd already gained. And then the game that was called off, Blackburn beat us 1-0 uh, when we rearranged the game. Uh, so we were on a lose-lose uh, in every way. But then the squad of players getting to the cup finals and the replays and all the games that we played, uh, the squad just wasn't quite big enough to cope with the, all that amount of games. And unfortunately, we did get uh, we did get relegated. But the only thing which eased the blow was that the following season we got promoted straight away and we got to another cup final, which I thought from that group of players getting promoted and getting to another cup final was a fantastic achievement by them. Yeah. And maybe your most memorable kind of FA Cup game was you involved in one of the great semi-finals against Chesterfield. Where is? Where is <laughs> three, I think it was great. Was, was it three all? <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> I mean, also there is an argument they scored a goal where the ball went over the line. I don't know if you've seen it, Brian. <laughs> what was that day like? Because you're going into that game and it's lose lose really. Yeah, we we were playing some great football at that time, and that's what got us to another semi final. But going back to Old Trafford was brilliant. Yeah been the FA Cup as well, the tradition of it. Uh, but then David Elry, uh, as a referee, was always known at that time. He always seemed to favour the underdogs to try and even a match-up. Is that right? He's, he sent off Vladimir Kinder um, within sort of 20 minutes of the game, which was a ridiculous decision. <laughs> a foul on Kevin Davis on the halfway line, and he sent them off. And so that sort of evened the game up. You know, but yeah, hey, it was an exciting game, brilliant for the Chesterfield fans. I mean, even even nowadays, Chesterfield fans don't forget it. And the goal, the ball was over the line, Brian. <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah, I, I mean, you couldn't see on the day because uh, you're in the dugout at Old Trafford, and there's no way you could see whether the ball's over the line. That, but when you look at it on TV, yeah, it was. And we got the benefit of the doubt uh, in that call. Thankfully, in the second game, the lads knew they were going to face a tough game, even though they were from a lower league. And they realised it, it's not going to be an easy game. And so we went on and we controlled the replay and got to the final and that. But yeah, Chesterfield were a bit unlucky because uh, the ball was over the line. That's official. Uh, no, officially it wasn't over the line because <laughs> we went to the final. Check the history okay. books. <laughs> At this time, you're also you're working as coach under Venables at um, England. And so you're at the centre of Euro 96. How high up in kind of your kind of career history does that pain of the Euro 96 semi-final feel? The pain's there because, you know, I felt that that team was good enough to go on and win the competition. Mm. Uh, but, hey, well, it's a proud moment being part of that, of where the lads did so well. You know, and I thought they were really unlucky because if you can remember, it was Golden Goal and Darren Anderton and... Gaza were so close to scoring the golden goal, you know, but it, it wasn't to be, we didn't have that little bit of fortune. I, the first five penalties we took were brilliant, uh, but in fairness, the Germans took six brilliant penalties. 
uh, you know, and it knocked us out because I think if we'd gone through to the final, I, I definitely think we would have beat the Czech Republic in the final. How did you and Terry divide up the duties? Like, who did the half-time talk? Was it, did Terry kind of take the lead and you follow on or? No, that's more or less always the manager. Uh, you know, Terry did the media. Terry did sort of like the team selection, how he wanted to set out the play. So when we went onto the training ground, myself and Don Howe, we would take the training and Terry would look on. And so in in that role, that was our main role, me and Don Howe, to coach the players and take the training session. Um, but then Terry would make all the major decisions. When you're doing training at England, what can you coach them? Because like day to day at a club, you're trying to improve this or that. But when you're bringing them together for a few weeks or the odd kind of qualifier or whatever what can you do with them that it must be very different from club management yeah no what what you're doing uh, just you're not you're not coaching them as individual players to make them better because you haven't got enough time for that you're getting all the best players or hopefully you're getting all the best players in England and now what you've got to do tactically you've got to set them out that they know exactly what their role is is in that team and the way you're going to play, whether it's 4-4-2, whether it's 4-3-3, whatever formation you're playing, you've got to be able to get that over. So it's not just on the training pitch, it's maybe tactically on a tactics board in, in a dressing room and you can just talk about it, what you're seeing each individual player's role is. And Terry Venables was very, very good at that. After Terry leaves, I remember in the papers at the time, there's a, a lot of rumours that you were going to take charge. How close did it come? To, how close did you come to taking the England job? Yeah, well, it was. Uh, I mean, that's why the England FA took me on board. It was Terry's um, sort of opinion that, you know, if I worked with him for maybe four years and that then I could step up into the job Um you know, so I think Terry had an influence on that. Unfortunately, whatever the fallout was with the FA and, and Terry, which I think was really harsh, because uh, I would love to have worked in the next World Cup with Terry. Um, that didn't happen. But yeah, Jimmy Armfield was um, given the role to select the next England manager. He, he offered me the job, but... Instead of thinking about it overnight, I just rushed in and just said, no, I've only had two years at Middlesbrough. I, I, I said, I need a lot more experience if I'm ever going to be England manager and that. So uh, I just said to him, no, it's too early for me. Do you think if you'd given it a week, you would have made a different decision? I, I think I might have done not, not even a week. I think if, if I just give it the weekend <laughs> and, and thought about it over the weekend... Remember, you're talking about being manager of your country. Yeah. Oh, wow. What wow. a kind of fork in the road. You bet you did amazing things with England as a player, obviously. Scored the fastest ever World Cup goal at that point in World Cup 82. And then you're 86. Obviously, we're obsessed with Italia 90 because um, it's a 90s football podcast, <laughs> which you're at. <laughs> we found a video the other day of um, Nigel Kennedy playing violin for the England team. And it cuts the England team, and you all look the most bored I've ever seen anyone <laughs> in my life. Can you can you remember this event, Brian? No, I think I was the only one smiling because violin's my favourite musical instrument. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, that's a load of rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, 1990, honestly, that's the most disappointed I've ever been ever in my career uh, because 86, I missed out on the World Cup because of dislocating my shoulder in the second game. Yeah. Went into that World Cup feeling really fit, just won the FA Cup. So, like, for me, I was thinking I'm right in the peak of my career. Uh, so when we played Holland in the second game and I snapped the Achilles, uh, and that was just devastating to miss out on that World Cup as well. So, and what happens then? Do you go home or do you just... Do you want to? Do you want to be as far away from it as possible? Like, what do you do? That happened to you twice. Do you want to stay around the lads, or how does it work? Well, the first time Bobby Robson asked me if I'd stay, and and I said yes because dislocated shoulder. You know, I knew I would be fit within a shortish period of time once I'd got it sold in. Uh, but with the Achilles, it's different. I would have been hobbling about on crutches, and it was important yeah. that I got back to have the operation and then get fit for, you know, the following season. Because Achilles, you know, it's going to be anything between six months and a year uh, to yeah. repair. That's why I decided that I'd go straight home on that one. With the, um, and the film Robbo is so, like, evocative of an amazing career. How do you feel? Would you sit down of an evening and watch that? And how would it make you feel? Do you know what I mean? It's such a great documentary. I'm delighted I did it because I was a little bit uh, sceptical whether I would sort of go ahead and do it. But then when you look at sort of like your childhood through to, you know, being Manchester United's ambassador, global ambassador, and I, I thought there was a lot to fit in there and, like, you know, show people that no matter how sort of down you are or what background you come from and everything, if you really believe in yourself, you, you can achieve anything. And that, and that was sort of the main reason why I wanted to go ahead and make the uh, documentary. I know what you mean when you say there's so much kind of material, because like we write these interviews for the footballers. I don't think I've ever had an interview where we've written for a footballer where you've thought, God, there's so much we could talk about. <laughs> like, there's such an amazing career from playing yeah. to managing to coaching to everything. You've lived, you've lived like five people's lives. This feels like difficult to one person did all this. You must be knackered. Um, we, we always end on one final question, which is like we ask people if they would like to go back to the first of January 1990 and do it again. But I'm gonna I'm gonna extend it for you. If I could offer you the chance to go back 1972 to be at West Brom and do it all over again, would you? Yeah, I certainly would. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've had a great career, uh, loved every minute of it. Yeah, you know, to do something you love and, and also get paid for it, I mean, how lucky are you when you do that? And do, do you take the England job in 96 and win the World Cup in 98? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Brian. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, thanks very much, lads. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Brian Robson there, absolute legend. I God, I'm starting know. to like Man U. What's my problem? <laughs> Can I, is it newsworthy? I didn't know he was offered the England job in 96. Is that public knowledge? Yeah. Well, it is, yeah, Chris. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> He's not given us the scoop, surely. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard it before, but when he said it, I thought, well, this can't be the first time he said this. He must have been asked this before in his life. Imagine if he'd gone, I'm saving it for a nostalgic football podcast, that bit of information. Well, I think, is it just safe to talk about now? Because maybe you just wouldn't want to undermine um, Glenn Hoddle at the time. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go, I was offered it before Glenn. Amazing that he didn't take it. But, you know, I can kind of understand. He'd only been at Middlesbrough two years. I wonder if he felt a kind of loyalty to Venables as well, who'd just been given the kind of unfairly given the push. Yeah. I love that he still lives in the same house. I know, that's, that's it's that. incredible. He's lived in the same house since the 80s. Imagine <laughs> how much it's gone up in value. <laughs> also, it looked look really new. It looked down to new yeah, build he's done, quality. He's done a good job it. of that. He's, he's done, done, a, done good, a good job. He's done a good job. Uh, thank you to Brian Robson. The Brian Robson story, Robbo, uh, is available, uh, oh, you know, where it's available, all the usual places. Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Amazon. I don't know if it's Amazon Prime or Amazon. He's slightly before my time, Brian Robson. So what's exciting about that is a lot of the stuff feels fresh to me, if you know what I mean, when you watch yeah. Brian Robson. I didn't see him in his pomp. Yeah, you're right, because as I started getting into football, he was the kind of like, he was the older talisman, wasn't he? You know, he, yeah. was, he would come off the bench, but you would just hear from everybody, like, what a great player he was. Actually, what I re-watched the Gary Lineker-Bobby Robson documentary uh, a few weeks ago, and in that, Bobby Robson said, like, the injuries to Brian Robson was what really cost us glory in 86 and 1919. You're like... Everybody talks about him as a player in such high esteem. Yeah. Holds, holds him in such high esteem. It's incredible how many good players we had in the late 80s. I know. Those teams were incredible. John Barnes, who was incredible. Brian Robson, Glenn Hoddle, Ray Wilkins, Gary Lineker, Peter Beardsley. These are such good players. Yeah. Peter Shilton. I don't <laughs> I was hoping you'd intentionally omitted that name. <laughs> right, now, we've asked for quizzes to end the show. Do you want to do a quick quiz to end the show? Let's do it. Yeah. A lot of people sent us in. Do you remember uh, different Robbie Slater um, options? Oh, yes. yes. Okay. So we'll do a quick penalty shootout. Of uh, Loads have come in, so sorry if I didn't use yours. Uh, we're using Matthew Osborne's, and we're also using um, Matt Taylor's. Okay. I'll be giving you... Five goodbyes, and I just need the 90s footballer to compete the phrase. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Chris, to begin. See you soon. <laughs> oh, God. Um, oh, I can't think about... Moon? Moon? No. It's see you soon. It's Mark Poom, see you soon. <laughs> That's a tricky Mark one. Poom. It's a tricky one. It's, it's, is he 90s? Mark Poom feels he like he's 90s. He's 100% is 90s, yeah. Mark okay, nil-nil. Michael, Godspeed. Um, Godspeed. Uh, oh, it, does it go footballer? Yeah. Saying, okay. Yeah. Uh, can I have a guess for you? It, it will get handed over if Michael can't do it. Oh, no, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Godspeed, Andy Reid. Andy Reid. I'm not going to give you it. It's Peter Reid and Andy Reid oh, is 90s. Oh, God. Andy Reid. I just, did, just did researched it. Mark Poom's real name is Poom Poom. <laughs> <laughs> poom Poom Poom. Let me answer <laughs> This is a tough one. I got to take off. Is this for me? Yeah. Yeah. I got to take off. Oh. It's so Stoichkov. Do you know oh. what? I'm going to give you half a point for that. Look, oh. you're a Lechkov, surely. Oh, well, I can't give you that. It was Richard Goff. <laughs> oh. I'd say both of ours are better than Richard Goff. 
Michael, I'm out of here. Peter Weir? Who's <laughs> Peter Weir? Peter Fear. Peter Fear. I'll give you half a point for Peter Fear. Peter Weir's a film director. But the correct answer is Al Dyer. I'm out of here. <laughs> the it's Roma centre back. Yeah. Okay. Half a point each so far. Chris, let's get going. Um. Oh, oh God. Let's get going, Mark Bowen. I'll give you half a point. It's Michael Owen. <laughs> it's time to roll, Michael. It's time to roll. Lee Catamol? I mean, that's too late, surely. <laughs> no, too late. It's Andy Cole. Uh, <laughs> my head's gone. Chris, you lead by half a point going into the final two. Okay. It's about that time. <laughs> so many phrases for going. About that time. Oh, man, I can't think. I've got nothing on there. I've got nothing. Brian Kilcline. Oh, that's tough. But it's perfect, really, because now you're half a point ahead with Michael okay. going into bat for the final name, which is exactly what you want. I'm going home. Ian Wone? Correct! Oh! He's done it! At the last! Oh, no! oh, oh no! what ending! It's exactly what you're looking for. He's done it! Oh. Well done, Michael. Congratulations. You get to pick the goodbye song. Uh, I'm going to pick... I think in honour of our guest today, I'm going to pick Come On You Reds, the Manchester United song. Oh, classic. Oh, yeah. It's a classic. It's, it's an absolute thrill to be back. We will see you uh, next week. Chris, you've got a, a, a plethora of options to say goodbye. Yeah. Well, what we've got to end on this. Time to go home. Ian Wong. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.